Welcome to the Jerry Acuff Show. I'm Jerry, your host, and I started this podcast to bring to you people who are doing incredible things. I've always been fascinated by those who have found their greatness, and I'm excited to share the secrets of their success. Let's meet today's guest. Today, we are lucky to have Jim Moose with us. Jim is an innovative business leader with extensive experience in the healthcare industry, which I love, including pharmaceuticals, biotech, and medical diagnostics. And he's done it from startups to Fortune 500 companies. Uh, In 2001, his wife Candace was diagnosed with myocarditis and underwent a heart transplant. And that led Jim to start the Myocarditis Myocarditis Foundation. Uh, Most recently, Jim co-founded his third for-profit business, uh, Leukolife DX, which is a medical diagnostic company that optimizes treatment for heart failure and other chronic diseases aimed at decreasing the mortality rate of patients undergoing heart surgery. Jim is also a graduate of Lehigh University, and for those of you who don't know Lehigh, it it ain't easy to get into. And he also has an MBA at Rutgers, and we are excited to have him. Jim, how are you? I'm good, Jerry. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, so so grateful that you would be on. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, because I know you've you've uh, you you grew up in uh, Pennsylvania and went to school in Pennsylvania, but you've moved around quite a bit. And how'd you get interested into uh, the uh, healthcare industry? Well, I was always interested in math and science and was fortunate enough that uh, once I graduated from Lehigh, I got a job in manufacturing at a company called Ortho Diagnostics, the diagnostics division of J&J. And that sort of started my path. I've continued, uh, as you said, with different parts of the healthcare industry. Uh, My wife's personal experience in 2001 that led to the heart transplant sort of put the whole personal perspective into what I do. But I've always enjoyed the the math science related to healthcare, as well as the feeling that all the work being done is really contributing to the well-being of people. Yeah, there's there's something about doing something that, you know, that's connected to your purpose that uh, really impacts people, isn't it? Absolutely. you know, especially when it's touched you so closely, uh, you know, seeing somebody that you love in critical care and all of the high tech equipment, pharmaceuticals, the training of the people involved, but also their compassion. When you when you bring all that together, we realize what a great healthcare system we have in this country. Yeah. And I think a lot of people take these things, you know, for granted. I know, you know, in my own case, uh, and I tell the story, and, I, and I'll, I'll shorten it here, but the last time I saw my father, who had Alzheimer's, he had been in a nursing home for a while, and my brother tells me um, that, you know, he hasn't said anything of any meaning in probably four or five months. Mm-hmm. And, and and I was always considered the, uh, the you know, my brothers and sisters still today call me FHB, which stands for fair-haired boy. They always thought I was dad's favorite. Dad told me I was his favorite, but, you know, then I later learned he told everybody else the same thing. <laughs> uh, but I went to see him in a nursing home 
uh, in Jackson, Tennessee, and my brother told me on the way up there, you know, we drove from Memphis. He said, you know, don't expect anything. Dad doesn't say anything. You know, it's typical nursing home chatter, et cetera. So when I get there, you know, because I've been in the drug business, you know, for so long, I always looked at the chart. So I look at the chart, and he's on a product that Novartis made um, for cognition. Mm-hmm. And I'm asking myself the question, why is he still on this? I mean, he doesn't have any cognition, right? And so we stay there for an hour and a half, and as we're leaving, um, he sits up in the bed, and he says to me as I walk out the door, Jerry, and I turn around and I look at him, and he says, I love you, son. Now, that's the last time I ever saw my father. But I remember the drive home to Memphis saying this to myself. I had this life-changing moment with my dad. Of course, then I didn't know it would be the last time I'd ever see him. But I had this life-changing moment in my, you know, with my dad because a drug rep did their job. Yeah. And, and, and it, really, it really hit me home just how important what people do in healthcare. Uh, is regardless of whether you're a nurse or whether you're a technician or whether you're in diagnostics or whether you're running a company. Um, I mean, you really are impacting lots of lives. I mean, this 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 drug, Exelon Patch is what it was. I mean, that drug didn't you know just change my dad's life. That changed my life. And uh, I tell people when I speak, especially to pharmaceutical companies that. Uh, you know, the reality is you you carry a responsibility to actually represent people who need your stuff. Yes. If they don't need your stuff. That's a different issue. So, Well, and I think that responsibility for helping to intervene at some of the worst moments in a, in a patient's life is the, the type of thing that in the industry drives the very rigorous standards uh, purity and uh, all of the other things that go into producing products. And I think people who work in this industry have a sense that these products are impacting people's lives in a way that most other industries don't have the opportunity to do. I know, and it's, and it's across the board. I mean, I know my, you know my daughter had a bout with depression and then got on the right drug and it totally changed her life. You know, I've got a, uh, you know, the, I've seen kids all the time with ADHD, and then their parents tell me they get on the right drug, and they're completely different children. I mean, it, it's just amazing the impact that, um, you know, that that medical companies can have on people's lives. So, yes. so tell me a little bit about your new company and what made you decide to start it. Well, the new company is called Luca Life DX. Uh, we are a medical diagnostic company. And we are developing a genomic assay that predicts the ability of advanced heart failure patients to survive surgery and other types of intervention. So, uh, for example, uh, advanced heart failure patients undergo any number of procedures, whether it's a coronary artery bypass graft, a valve replacement, insertion of a mechanical circulatory pump, or at the extreme, a heart transplant. But the statistics show that there is a 10 to 30% mortality rate within one year from the procedure. So while there are a great many diagnostic tools that are used to determine the underlying cause of the heart failure, for instance, a blocked artery or insufficient ventricle contraction to pump the blood, 
Ours will be the first assay that diagnoses the patient's ability to survive the procedure. And the way we do it is we're looking, it's a genomic assay differentiated from genetics. Genetics is the uh, makeup of your genes that, that we each inherit from mother and father that help determine whether we have blonde hair or blue eyes or whatever. Genomics is the up and down regulation of specific genes that translates into protein production in the body. And that up and down regulation over time and has been correlated to certain medical conditions and is predictive even before symptoms of that condition are are observable. One example, for instance, is uh, a test that my wife receives routinely called the Allomap test. Um, Patients who have transplanted hearts or other organs need to be tested periodically to see if their body is rejecting the foreign tissue. Right. And that used to be done with a cardiac biopsy. They send a catheter in through a carotid artery into the ventricle of the heart, remove several pieces of tissue, and examine them under a microscope. The Allomap test is a genomic test that looks at specific genes whose up or down regulation is predictive of rejection of the organ. And so it's much less invasive for the patient, much much more comfortable, uh, the data is reliable, and it sort of revolutionized the testing for organ rejection. Um, in the same manner, uh, there are a number of companies with products on the market that test for recurrence of breast cancer. So a woman uh, who has a low likelihood of recurrence for breast cancer, as identified by these tests, may be spared the debilitating effects of chemo and radiation therapy because the cancer is unlikely to reoccur. If, if there's a high likelihood based on the test, they would undergo those therapies. And so what our assay is attempting to do is not determine which surgery or intervention would best correct the heart or circulatory system defect. It's simply determining whether this patient is strong enough to survive the surgery and live for at least one year. Wow, that's uh, fascinating stuff. So how'd you come up with that idea? Well, it's not my idea. Um, When my wife was ill and first went to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York, uh, her heart failure physician is a gentleman by the name of Mario Deng. Uh, We have remained friends with Mario and his wife, uh, have known them for the 17 years since Candace's procedure. Uh, Dr. Deng is now a cardiologist and professor of medicine at UCLA. He was co-developer of the Alamap heart rejection assay that I just spoke about. Right. And he has been working on developing a similar genomic assay to be predictive in heart failure. Gotcha. Uh, so he's been doing some studies. He's published a number of articles. He needed help from somebody who knew business and knew how to help with startups. And it was almost a year ago that we got together and decided to form this business and see if we can advance the technology and get it to market to benefit patients. Wow. So in the heart failure, isn't it fairly true that if you have heart failure that your life expectancy is reduced by, I don't know, 10 years or so? Well, it is. Um, you know, it's, it's usually a result of another defect. Gotcha. So 
heart failure is essentially a mismatch between the body's need for oxygenated blood and the ability of the circulatory system to deliver that quantity of oxygenated blood. Gotcha. So maybe there's a blockage in an artery and that tissue supplied by the artery doesn't get the oxygen. Uh, maybe in a worst case situation, the heart is scarred or too weak to continue to pump. Uh, and so there are all these procedures to address the underlying cause. What's not known currently, other than through normal clinical assessment and, and uh, you know, some of the uh, current diagnostics, but what's not known definitively is whether the patient is strong enough to survive the procedure. Right. That's what we hope that our test, called the MyLeukoMap assay, will do. Wow, that's awesome. You know, my uh, 92-year-old father-in-law broke his hip the day before his 92nd birthday, which happened to be the day before Thanksgiving. And without any, you know, discussion with the family, they scheduled surgery for Thanksgiving morning at 7 o'clock. Mm. And so we find this out, you know, that evening before and having been in the pharmaceutical business, you know, a long time, and I knew a lot about, you know, uh, broken hips, I know that, you know, I think the, the number is like 25 to 40% of those people die within 12 months. And so I'm yep. saying this guy's had five bypasses. Uh, you know, he's got, um, um, I think his GFR is, you know, 28 or 29 and so, you know, I'm uncomfortable that he's having this surgery. I mean, I know there's, you know, there's not a lot of other stuff you could do. But so I, I scheduled a meeting that morning at 6 o'clock on Thanksgiving morning with his doctor. And, you know, it was my responsibility to give the go-ahead or not give the go-ahead. And so uh, so I, I remember meeting with this uh, this surgeon who was, you know, going to replace his hip and, um, you know, maybe mid-40s. And so we had a lengthy clinical discussion about, about all this. And I remember the last thing he said to me, he said, Mr. Acuff, he said, I've done thousands of these procedures. He said, I've done hundreds on people over 90. Your father-in-law has been checked out clinically. He's in fine shape. I have never lost a patient, and I ain't losing one today. And I said, well, then get to work. And so <laughs> I am taking my father-in-law, who be who's 94, to dinner this Wednesday night. Um, wow. But, you know, but it would have been great if there were some assay that could actually predict whether he would be one of those people that survived this thing for more than 12 months. Yeah, and there's a couple of factors that go into the decision to actually go ahead with the surgery. Um, number one is that in some cases, the relationship between physician and patient is such that the physician basically makes the decision. Right. You know, we know this is the defect causing the problem, causing the symptoms and the suffering. I'm going to go in and I'm going to fix it, as opposed to the decision being shared between physician and patient, which is the sort of the model that Dr. Deng ascribes to and, and we're trying to help promote with this assay. Gotcha. The second issue is the tendency of all of us when we have a loved one who is critically ill to say, forget about cost. I want the best procedure. I want the, the most that you can do for my father, let's say. And what doesn't enter the conversation is whether or not my father is strong enough to survive the procedure. Right. And that 10 to 30% one-year mortality rate across all these heart failure procedures is a fairly significant 
percentage of death. It is. Um, you know, if we can get this assay, if we can prove it works in a large clinical study, get it cleared by FDA, get it into clinical use and accepted by physicians, it could uh, Im- improve patient survival, certainly improve the patient experience, uh, allocate the most aggressive procedures to the patients who will most benefit from them, and overall save tremendous cost in the healthcare system because you're not using these very aggressive, very cost-intensive procedures on patients who don't derive any long-term benefit. Well, that ought to get the government to pay for it. That's great. Um, <clears throat> let, let me let me go sideways here in a minute because you, your 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 extensive experience is so remarkable. But you, you've you've had experience founding for-profit businesses and not-for-profit organizations. Which would you say is more difficult? Well. The, the several businesses in my previous career was where I was um, initially chief executive, in many cases were transitions of ownership, or in one case, um, a, a spinoff, another case, a merger of businesses. So usually there's a growth component as, as opposed to simply creating a whole new business. Right. Uh, what we're doing now is creating a whole new company. Right. I, I think the difference between the profit and nonprofit, I, I, it's hard to say which one is more difficult. I think for-profit companies, um, in terms of finding investors, the investors want a fair return for right. their money. That's why they're investing in a for-profit company. Right. And if the company, as many healthcare opportunities do, are doing good for patients and the general population, that's an added benefit. With nonprofits like the Myocarditis Foundation uh, that my wife founded, and I was uh, the director for, for a period of time, there you're contributing money simply because you believe it will do well for people, that right. you believe it's the right thing to do. Wow. So, you know, with that single component, without the profit component combined, I would say it's probably more difficult raising money for nonprofits. That's interesting. I, I never thought of it like that before. I mean, my, my wife and I are, are very f- philanthropic because we've been very, you know, blessed financially. Um, and um, and I would say <laughs> the same thing. It's uh, it's harder to uh, it's harder to build a business, you know, w- whether you need investors or not, than it is to, uh, you know, give money to something that you really believe in. Uh, that's a that's just not a hard thing to do. It's not a hard thing for me to do at all. I mean, it may be hard for me. You can't do it for everybody. You know, you have to sort of pick and choose your causes. But those things that my, my wife's a breast cancer survivor for 15 years. And so, uh-huh. you know, we're going to donate to almost anything that says breast cancer. And well, um, I, I think the difficult part with nonprofits is, is if you're on the board of a nonprofit, trying to increase the impact means simply asking people for money. Yeah, no, I'm... Uh, I'm Arcaditis Foundation, you know, we we spend money uh, giving research grants, looking for better diagnostics and a cure, uh, education for the general public, and in some cases, physicians as to how to better recognize the condition, as well as for family and patient support. And there's no limit to the amount of money that can't be a greater contribution to those those uh, good activities. Yeah. So you you know you've started 
and 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 led multiple organizations and companies and, and that isn't easy i don't care who you are how, how did your network play a role in getting you to where you are now i mean you mentioned you know dr den which is obviously you know a part of your network but but i'm a big believer that you know there are two things it takes to be successful in life one is you need to be really good at your job <laughs> because mm-hmm. if you're good at your job other people will want you but if you don't have a network of people who know about you, then being good at your job is not enough. Uh, and if you have a network and you suck at your job, then that doesn't matter either. Well, the, the network is certainly critical. Um, you know, I maintained a network as I moved from job to job in my career. Um, having retired a few years ago, I sort of let that drop. I didn't anticipate getting back into business. Uh, and was focused on nonprofits. Now I'm sort of reestablishing myself uh, in the industry. But previously, the network was a source of advice as to how to deal with problems, a source of potential candidates when you needed to bring additional talent into a new company, um, a source of recommendations to customers. Uh, I ran a contract manufacturing business. And word of mouth from one customer for whom we manufactured product to another that needed a manufacturer was a big part of growing the business. So, right. you know, you branch out uh, as in any industry with with knowing as many people as you can and staying connected. So what are your goals for uh, Luca Life um, over the next year or so? Well, having having developed the assay and shown proof of concept, we know that it works. Uh, our first goal is to raise money. So we are talking to venture capital firms gotcha. and high net worth individuals, uh, making sure that people understand the idea and its potential. Once we have the money secured, the next step is to conduct a large clinical study uh, we'll probably uh, be diagnosing at least a thousand patients. We've made uh, inroads contacting cardiologists at some 20 to 25 medical centers. We would perform that study. We would follow the patients for one year after their procedure and track their well-being and survival. Uh, look for FDA clearance and then look to launch the product within the next three years. Wow, that's uh, that's exciting. Um... Wow, you've had a, an in, incredibly interesting uh, career after leaving Lehigh, uh, and I am so impressed with all the things that you've accomplished. Uh, I thank you so much for being our guest. What I'm going to do is the way I always end these uh, podcasts is I'm going to sort of summarize some of the things that you said that I think our listeners need to to pay attention to. Um, and, you know, the one is you got to know your stuff i mean it's not it's not hard listening to you at all to understand that you have wild expertise in what you're doing and i'm a big believer that you know knowledge is power especially if you know how to use it if you don't know how to use it it's useless but mm-hmm. you but you need so much knowledge to be successful and i think today you know in this sort of uh, innovative uh, sort of environment that we find ourselves probably more innovative because of the Internet than, than anything we've ever done, you know, sort of maintaining that knowledge is is a constant um, 
thing that all of us need to focus on. I mean, I know I read 25 books a year, and I, I, did, I read 100 book summaries uh, a year. And, and the book summaries only take 30 minutes because I can do one in 12 minutes. Uh, the other thing that you said it, it, that I thought was really, really interesting was how you used your network. I mean, I always talk about the network being critical, and I always talk about how you know, 85% of jobs are, are filled through networks or not filled through, you know, job postings and stuff like that. And they're, they're, they're in fact, in, in, I think 70% of them are, are never, um, or, or they're, they're never even, you know, they never get posted out uh, in the company. But, but you said three things that I thought were, uh, were really powerful about networking and, and, and what networking can do for you. Because I always see networking as a way for you to get a listening ear. You know, somebody wants to listen to you differently if they actually are in your network and you have a valuable business relationship with you. But you said that, number one, your network is a great source of advice. Yes. Now, I would say to you, as a guy who's written three books on this, that the vast majority of people – do not take advantage of their network for advice. Interesting. I, I mean, it's just amazing. And, and I don't know whether there's a fear of asking for advice, but I think you're 100% right. And I tell people, if, you're, if you are in a network and don't use it, then shame on you. Why are you in it? You know? So you have and, to, and you got to be Jim, in it. I've, I've used my network for things like that, not only to ask about problems or issues that maybe I hadn't seen before. But I might talk to a former colleague and say, do you remember when we had this particular problem? I have it in my new company. Remind me how we addressed it, what we did. And, right. and that kind of use is very important. I know, but then you talked about it's a source of talent. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> that's that's no small thing. I mean, you're, you're starting a company. You're starting a not-for-profit foundation. You're running a company. You know, where do you where do you look for people? I mean, the, the, the best place to look is the people that you know the best. Yes. Uh, and, then, and then the other thing that you said, which I thought was genius, and that's a source of helping your customers. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer that, you know, the way to, to, to customers' hearts is through a thing called, uh, you know, I call them unexpected thoughtful acts. It's, uh -huh. it's where you do things to help customers where they're not expecting you to help them. And it could be something as small as, you know, somebody mentions to you that's a customer that they're going to New Orleans for dinner. I mean, they're going to New Orleans for a convention. And so I'll go home and I'll call the Ritz-Carlton in New Orleans and say, hey, give me the name of three restaurants that this person is not likely to go to unless they, you know, are native New Orleans. I don't want Galatoire's. I don't want Emeril's. I don't want Commander's Palace. And, and then I'll just go to the other person and say, hey, you tell me you're going to New Orleans uh, I mean, people like people that help them. Yes. Even if it's small things, they, they like people that that uh, that help them. And then the last thing, you know, I, th I thought that was really powerful was your was your belief in how difficult it is to find investors uh, and how much easier it is to find people that are willing to give to a uh, a worthy cause. So um, lots of great takeaways here. I wish you phenomenal success. 
uh, and um, I just I just think what you're doing is incredible. I think you're on the cusp of uh, of ideas that are going to change the way medicine is treated over the next fifty years. I won't be here to see it, and 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 uh, but I think it's going to dramatically change medicine, and and not in a bad way, but in a in a great way. But these these predictive kinds of assays that you're talking about are, are huge in terms of saving money to the system, but not only saving money to the system, but helping the people that actually unnecessarily have to go through these procedures and their families who have to go through all of that that stuff. So uh, thanks so much for being a guest. You were absolutely uh, fabulous, and I hope to get a chance to see you one of these times when I'm up near Point Pleasant. And uh, thank you. And as always, I end every single episode by saying, do what Jim Moose did. Be incredible. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's show where we met yet another incredible person. As a thank you for listening, I want to extend a special offer. I want to give you 50% off of Jerry Acuff VT because I want to help you be incredible. Head over to jerryacuffvt.com and use the code JAVT50OFF at the checkout and accelerate your path to finding your greatness. You're listening to RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio.